0: Well, today we, um, we're going to close our series on Waking the Dead, Study of Ephesians. We're going to do a short review of kind of where we've come, and uh, then we will—I just loved all these middle schoolers sitting here watching this. Wasn't that great to have them here? And um, two weeks from today, we will be starting Advent, so on our way to Christmas. It'll look, it'll look and feel different than we've done up until now. And I'm excited about that. We've been working hard on planning it. So if you have your Bibles, you might turn to Ephesians 6, verse 10. There's some, in your, I think, in your pews underneath the seat. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, pull it out. Now's the time. We're going to talk through this last section in Ephesians. We've been asking the question all along, what does it mean when the dead wake up? Waking the dead. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you have been raised alive together and seated at the right hand of Christ. And what does that mean? Uh, What does it mean when the dead wake up? So in chapter 1, we talked about all of God's blessing and his initiation and moving into our lives. And that when the dead wake up, they begin to cross over ethnic lines, boundaries. Because the Gentiles are all of a sudden included in this whole discussion. Something brand new. God had promised that to Abraham in Genesis 12 that I will bless all the nations through you. So we've used that phrase, we are to be a blessing to the nations. And almost everyone here in this congregation represents fulfillment of that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, because we're Gentiles. Genesis 2, or Genesis, Ephesians 2, we talked about when these, these two come together, what does reconciliation look like? So when the dead wake up, they begin to reconcile with one another. And it says that Christ broke down the barrier of the dividing wall and established peace, the the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles, these two groups. And he created this one new humanity, this redeemed community of which we are a part of. We talked about the fact that we become a blessing to the nations when that happens. And I mentioned that um, God blessed you so that you would be a blessing to others. God redeemed you so that you would know what it looks like to move into the lives of others in a redemptive way. Um, Most of you know that my first wife died many years ago. Since that opportunity, I've had plenty of chances to talk to people who have lost spouses. Paul talks in the Corinthian epistles about we have experienced sorrow so that we can bring comfort to others. So your very life belongs to the Lord. You become a billboard for him, if you will. The whole idea of right to privacy, that's an American right, it's not a biblical right. In fact, if you look at the Bible from beginning to end... God parades one broken person after another through the pages of Scripture, doesn't He? Each of you can think of someone in Scripture that um, lived a pretty broken life, as sinful as any of us, sometimes more so. And that's an example that we become a a billboard for God, a chance for Him to reveal His glory. How else do people learn except through us? So we talked about that, that uh, you're a blessing to bless others. You've been redeemed to help redeem others. You've, uh, you've been forgiven, so you know what it's like to forgive others. You have had some of your burdens carried, so you know what it's like to help others with their burdens. That's the way God has made it. We talked about the fact that uh, when you wake up, you see the world as broken as it truly is, and that you can't really understand death until you've been brought to life. When you've been brought to life, then you can see how tragic the, uh, the world is around us. And the more you get below the surface with people, the more you see how broken it is. It is just an amazingly broken place. And God loves his creation. And everything within God is moving to bring about restoration and redemption to this broken creation because he loves us. He loves all the creation. And that's his movement. We talked about the fact that when the dead wake up, they join the spiritual temple. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean to be a temple? We are a temple. This is where all the functions of the temple in the Old Testament get lived out. This is where we worship. This is where we celebrate. This is where we dance with joy. This is where we forgive one another. This is where the word of God is taught. All those things happen right here. And this is God's primary way of reflecting his glory. Um, We talked about the fact that when you wake up from the dead, you join the human race. And that's a way of explaining that language that um, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Wonderful language. It's in the Bible. But what does that mean? Christ is a true human. So that means that you are being restored to what you're created to be all along. So Jeff, you're becoming true Jeff. Uh, The more you love the Lord, the more you become Jeff. Darla, the same for you. And so it's a wonderful thing. You learn what it means to love people better. You learn what it means to be more generous with each other. You learn what it means to care. All the things that God created within you, when you're brought to life, you begin to see those things. And then finally, we talked about the fact that the church is God's chosen instrument to reflect his glory. I don't know why. All I can tell you is that's that's what he has decided, to take us as broken people and reflect his glory. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, that incredibly wonderful benediction. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So we share a partnership with Christ in that we reflect his glory to a broken world around us. If we do this church thing well, then the world sees it. The world can't help but see it. If we are not a loving church, then what do we have to say to a world that doesn't understand love? If we're not a forgiving church, what do we have to say to a world that doesn't understand forgiveness? If we're a fractured church, what do we have to say to a world that lives in disunity and chaos all the time? It is only when we begin to act and live out these wonderful principles in each other's lives that our testimony begins to shine brightly, very brightly. John Calvin argued that at salvation, you became a mirror. And as a mirror, you reflect the glory of the Lord outward. Now, the day that you turn to Christ, you become that mirror. Now, it's a pretty dirty mirror, quite honestly. And what happens is as you begin to mature and you begin to learn what it means to love others and care for people... It's like polishing that mirror. And as you polish that mirror, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. So you young people, just be patient. Hang in there. Don't give up. Your Christian testimony matters. What you say and do and how you live your life is critical. Some of the older people in here can attest to God's faithfulness over the years. Am I right? We've seen God at work, haven't we? In our own brokenness and the brokenness of others. And and that's, that's a wonderful God that we serve, the one true living God. He is very faithful and at work. So to you young people, hang in there. Be faithful. Your Christian character matters. It does make a difference. And uh, the better we are at this, the brighter that reflect that glory outward. So that's what we talked about from the whole standpoint of what happens when the dead wake up. That took us through chapter 3. Then beginning in chapter 4, we introduced all of the commands about what does it mean for us to live life together and uh, what's important. And he starts off in Ephesians 4.3 with this very famous command, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the overarching command that, can, that I think explains all of Ephesians. Be diligent to preserve this unity which God brought about. Christ did through his own faithfulness. Unity. Unity. Can't say it enough. Unity. Satan's greatest tool is division. If he can divide He has won. If he can create leverage between us, he's made a significant inroad into his life. So every single one of these commands all throughout Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are all focused on how do we preserve this unity and what does that look like. Remember, this unity was brought about by Christ when he destroyed the barrier of the dividing wall when he died on the cross. And so the Jews and Gentiles who were like this, It's strange for one another. Now they're like this. And we have this brand new redeemed humanity. We talked about the walking verbs all throughout Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. There's five of them. Uh, In this last section, he doesn't use a walking verb, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But the walking verbs are all focused on what happens right here within the context of Dillon Community Church. It's all internally focused. Don't live as the Gentiles do. Don't be greedy with one another. Don't have... Poor speech come out of your mouth, but encourage one another. Remember all those phrases and things that we've talked about? Let the church, let the Spirit fill our church. Let our, let's hope our marriages. Let's grow our marriages. Help them to grow strong. Let's, uh, let's take care of families. All the things that we talk through in there. But when we get to verse 10 of chapter 6, he shifts the gaze outside of DCC to out here. And it's not people. It's Satan. So let's read this together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There it is. Our struggle is not with fellow humans. As much as it feels like it is, it is not. That is not where the true struggle is. Our struggle is not against fellow humans. Or we could say our struggle is not with each other at Dillon Community Church. Rather, it's against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our true enemy is Satan, not each other. And that's so important to remember because Satan will do everything he can to deflect the attention away from him onto someone else. We'll come back and talk about what does it look like to... Put this aside and behind us. Back to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. The very first thing he includes here is a passive idea. It's, 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 you could translate it this way very easily. Finally, DCC, let the Lord strengthen you with his mighty power. Let the Lord strengthen you. By the way, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We talked about earlier in the book. It's the same power that raised you to life. There's no power in the all of creation that even comes close to this power. So Dylan Community Church, let the Lord strengthen you with his mighty power. It's his power at work, not ours. Then he goes on and says, put on the full armor of God so that you can be victorious. No, it says you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's going to repeat this phrase, take your stand or stand firm. The goal is not to win. It's already won. When Christ said it is finished on the cross, he meant it. He didn't mean it was almost finished. He means it is finished. The war is over. We are the victors. We sang that today. The only question now is what does it look like in the meantime between now and when Christ returns? It's not a question of winning. That's already done. We're not trying to win new ground. Christ has already done everything that has to be done. We now have to stand firm. It's against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against each other, but against all the rulers, against the authorities, everything in the world that we cannot see. So how on earth do we fight a battle with unseen forces? How do you do that? That's a real challenge. I know how to fight you, by the way. I'm quite good at that, actually. And, you know, I've learned through experience that you guys are pretty good at it, too. You know how to fight each other. That's the wrong place for the battle. So how do we fight the true enemy? And this is what he has to say. Verse 13. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. There it is again. Stand your ground so that you may be able to stand firm. Stand your ground. So you put on this armor of God. Well, what is that? We'll get to that in a second. So that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand there's the third time to stand it's not the, the goal's not to be victorious the battle's already won the goal is to stand firm verse 14 stand firm then this is the fourth time you get the idea this is important he says it four times in this short passage stand firm don't give in if we do nothing else but preserve the unity in this church It'll be a grand slam. We win. Or God wins through us. If we do nothing else but protect this unity that Christ paid such a high price for, we win. If we do everything right except protect the unity, we lose. That's how significant this is. Stand firm, verse 14, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. It's interesting that the very first thing he starts with is truth. Truth, That's the most important thing that you could consider in this war with Satan. Especially when it comes to protecting unity. Because you know what? You're not God. Sorry to disappoint some of you, but you're not God. You don't know people's motives, do you? Not really. You don't know circumstances. In fact, that's the one thing God tried to protect us from in the garden is the knowledge of good and evil. We're not created to know this, to have this level of knowledge. We're just not. And so when you begin to sense that hostility with one another, pause and just ask the question, what is the actual truth here? You may not know it. Don't assume it. So if you're in hostility with someone or tension with someone, my advice is don't make an assumption. Go ask them. I'm I'm feeling this tension. Are you feeling it? Where did it come from? How do we address it? Don't make assumptions. Truth. Truth is the very first part of this armor. And then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's a picture of God out of Isaiah. God wears the breastplate of righteousness. And righteousness in very simple language means fixing what is broken, putting to rights what is wrong. In other words, our movement into each other's lives should be to bring a sense of healing, should bring a sense of putting to right, because this is what God does. That's the whole message of Ephesians 1. He is a righteous God. He moves in our lives in a way to fix what needs to be fixed. So truth, just stop and ask the question, what do I really know? What's the actual truth? And go ask. But then go with the motivation of wanting to bring that sense of healing. Then he says verse 15 with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall and created peace. Remember peace, the absence of hostility. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. If we can eliminate hostility in our relationships, unity results. It just happens because we've brought about peace. So the fact that he puts us on our feet says, be quick to run to another person, any other part of the church. Run there as fast as you can to create this sense of peace, the absence of hostility. Deal with the hostility. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith from which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In Isaiah 59, this is a portrait of God. When the Messiah comes, God as a general, since he's using military warfare imagery, God as a general will lead us. Back to verse 10. Let the Lord strengthen you with his mighty power. So the question is, do you really believe in God's mighty power? Do you believe that it is really powerful enough to break down strongholds? That's a Pauline concept. Paul thought of it. It's in a song. To break down strongholds. Jesus talked about it. Do we really believe this? Is that powerful? Now, the problem with this passage, as it's been translated in various sectors of the church, it's often viewed as an independent, a solo mission. It's me against Satan. It's always oriented me against Satan, the spiritual warfare. And yet I don't find that in Scripture. I'm going to show you a video clip. I'm going to cue it up here in just a second that I want you to look at. For those of you that were here a year and a half ago when I preached my very first sermon, we actually talked about this. This It's a video clip out of Gladiator. This is a glimpse of what military strategy looked like in the first century world. This was part of Paul's life. It's a little bit graphic, um, just so you know, but it's the world of Paul and the people in the first century world. Asia Minor, the churches that received this, they would have grasped this real fast. So look at this video clip. Notice how organized the Romans are versus the barbarians. Spiritual warfare involves organization. Spiritual warfare is not something to mess around with, it is real battle. Die in this battle. See how organized the Romans are? This is how they conquered the world, organization. Hold the line, stand firm. That's the general shouting. Stand firm, hold the line. Hold the line, stand firm. Stay with me. See the Roman line of march. We're all marching out side by side. What's what they do with their shields? All the arrows come. There it is. Sorry I couldn't freeze that. First century military strategy was designed to uh, military Roman strategy, which is what Paul's referring to here. It would only survive in a line of battle. Well, what would happen if there was just one person out there with that big shield? Would they survive? Not for a second. What happens if there is chaos? If the line is in disarray and they're not protecting each other, would they survive? They wouldn't, would they? Those, those big shields were designed, and that's the same word. Paul had several words to choose from shield of faith, and he chose the big one. They were designed so that the line would come out, and they'd line up those shields, Across the whole field, and then the second one would put a roof over the top of shields. And then they would wait until the barbarians had expended all their arrows. When they were done, if you continue the scene, then they would stand up and annihilate the barbarians. That's how Roman strategy, military strategy, was designed. Every piece of armament that the Roman soldier carried with them was designed to operate in line of battle. Every bit. Every one of the pronouns in this passage... Every command, every participle is plural. This is a picture of what we as a church are to be like. If you go on and see the movie a little bit later on, you'll see glimpses of where when there's a wounded soldier, if you leave them in front of the shields, they die. So you pull them back behind where it's safe. That's another imagery. Is there a safer place in the world for people that struggle with sin than right here? There shouldn't be. This is the safest place. By the way, you young folks, men and women, as you become of age, welcome to the line. Nick, Jared, welcome to the line. I welcome George in the first service. As you come of age and your faith becomes real and you begin that process of joining the battle, welcome to the line of march. Disarmament only works if we are standing side by side. The orientation is not me against Satan. I don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. The orientation is me side to side with my brothers and sisters fighting a spiritual battle that is very real, it's very graphic, and it is very costly. People die if we don't. So what happens when the dead wake up? We protect one another. We protect one another. The most important person in the world to me is you, another believer. That's the most important person. Our battle is not against the barbarians. That's where the imagery breaks down. He's using the Roman imagery to help us understand our battle is against Satan. The only way we will stand firm is to be unified. So remember... If we do nothing right except protect the unity that Christ created, then it's a, it's a home run. It's a grand slam. We have won. If we do everything right except protect that unity, we've lost. Satan is already in our midst. You can tell Satan is in our midst when you begin to feel that division or that hostility, the tension begin to rise. That's how you know. I'm going to invite the ushers and the musicians to come back up. We're going to take our offering. Someone asked about, uh, a couple people asked, this is the third Sunday when we usually take the benevolence offering. We're actually taking it next week. So as I have said many times and Mark has said to you, uh, we're just grateful for you. We just love you. Go ahead and have the ushers. Come on up, ushers. We're grateful for you. And uh, we know that you sacrifice. We know that you, you, you pay a cost to make this church work. And I can't tell you how thankful and grateful we are and how much we love you. So let me pray and ask God to bless this offering. Father, as we receive these gifts and sacrifices and offerings from these people, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to use it well. Our commitment is to use it to bring glory and honor to your name, to the hurting, to the marginalized, to the lost, to those who need help. Lord, whatever comes our way, we promise to use it well with integrity. Thank you for these people. I pray that you would bless them for their generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.